Welcome to today's Community Cast. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm the pastor at Community Brookside, a new church plant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We are so blessed by your presence, and we hope that today's content will bring you joy. So out on the cattle ranches of the Old West, there's the uh, the unbranded calves. You ever heard about these unbranded calves that kind of run around uh out in the West, it kind of used to happen a lot. It's not so much a big deal now. Uh, most of the West is pretty well populated by, uh, by folks. But uh, there used to be a time in our history where sometimes cattle would get loose and their calves would be born out in the wilderness and they'd be kind of wild. They would be known as mavericks. They are claimed by any person who is the first person to get their brand on them at the annual roundup. So they'd call in cowboys and, and cow girls and cow, cow people to come and wrangle these cattle together. And if you were able to rattle up some of these cattle, you could put your brand on them. And from that moment on, they would belong to you. There was a little Western girl who had been baptized one Sunday by the Methodist minister of the town. And on Monday morning, her schoolmates asked her what the meaning of baptism was and what was all the ceremony about. Well, she said, I will just tell you, I was a little maverick out on the prairie, and that man put the mark of Jesus on my forehead so that when he sees me, he will know that I'm one of his. Baptism is a very important part of our Christian journey, and this week we're going to be looking at, at Jesus and the time in his life where he too gets baptized. So I hope that, that you remember your baptism. I was a, an infant when I got baptized, so I don't remember it very well, but I do know that I was baptized, and I get to celebrate that. And I hope that today, as we talk about baptism, that you're reminded of that time in your life. And if you've not been baptized, I encourage you to think about what that might look like for you. Find a time to meet with me, and we would love for that to happen. You know, as important as baptism usually is in our faith journey, I often think that uh, we take baptism for granted nowadays. Oftentimes, uh, there's a joke that goes around and it says that uh, it, it takes 90 gallons of water to baptize a Christian and only nine drops of rain to keep them away from church on Sunday morning. So baptism is the initiation into Christ's church. So I hope that we never, ever lose sight of how important our baptism is. And I hope that we never take church for granted, we, whether you're online or here in person, church and, and the body of believers is so important. And our baptism is an initiation into that body of believers. So last week, we continued our journey in following Jesus out of the nativity into his, his public life and his public ministry. And we saw him become a young boy. And he was learning about who he was and who his heavenly father was. We followed Jesus as he was presented in the temple. And we got to see Anna, uh, you know, kind of come and, and share about who she knew Jesus to be. And Simeon got to see Jesus and pronounce that he was the one that, that the Israelites were waiting for. We also got to see Jesus left behind in a trip to Jerusalem. And when they find Jesus four days later, he is sitting in the temple listening to the teachers talk about who God was. We talked about how important it was for Jesus to be prepared for his ministry on earth, just like it's important for us to be prepared for the ministry that each of us is called to be a part of. Being prepared was immensely important to Jesus and we're going to see that a little more clearly again today. When we left off last week, Jesus was still a young boy at the age of 12. He had just been found in the temple in Jerusalem after being missing for four days. 
We pick up this morning in the next chronological step in Jesus's journey. And so we skip a lot of Jesus' life. We see him when he's, you know, a teenager, 13 years old. But then we skip a lot and now we see him about the age of 30. So there's this kind of section of Jesus' life that we don't know exactly what happened. But we pick up today with Jesus' baptism. And what's great about the baptism of Jesus is that it's so important that every single gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them have a story of Jesus' baptism. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. Not all the gospels tell the same story. Not all of them talk about the same snippets of Jesus' life. That's why we have four of them, because they each give the story of Jesus from a different perspective. And even the four gospels, each one of them records Jesus' baptism just a little bit different. So this morning, I want us to look in the book of Matthew. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and we're going to hear about what leads up to Jesus' baptism. So you can follow along on the screen in here, or you can follow along at home as well. It'll be shown there. Here's what scripture says this morning. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. There's a couple of things that I want us to hear when we read through this telling of Jesus' baptism. First of all, we're introduced to a man named John the Baptizer, or as we know him today, John the Baptist. He is not Baptist by denomination. Let's be clear. He was not a Baptist. He was a baptizer, and we call him John the Baptist. Scripture tells us that he is baptizing people for the repentance of sins. Now, this is something that is very similar to Baptists, right? Baptism is, for a lot of folks, it's, it's where people are rem- immersed in water, 
and it's a, a sign and a symbol of the repentance for their sins. While we often think of baptizing people today as either being sprinkled or immersed, honestly, back in this particular period of time, there is no precedent for an immersion baptism like we think of baptism today. Now, there was no Jewish tradition of baptism. Uh, there was something similar. There was a ritual cleansing that happened. A lot of times we talked about it last week, how uh, Mary, before she could come and present herself in the temple and before she could participate in religious life again, had to be cleansed. And this happened through what was called a mikvah, M-I-K-V-E-H, a mikvah. It's a, a, a ritual bath is what it was called. And they were used after a woman gave birth to a child or after someone had touched something that was unclean or uh, for people who had to bury the dead. You had to be bathed in this mikvah in order to be made ritualistically pure again. So it wasn't like you were going under the water, uh, signifying your death to sin and coming up out of the water, being alive in Jesus as we recognize baptism today. It was not the same thing. But John was doing something very different. Baptism, as we think about it, is just kind of this dying to self and this being made alive again with Jesus, a sign of what God has done for us. And it was not something the Jewish people would have recognized at that time. So John was kind of doing something new and people ate it up, right? So scripture tells us that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to be baptized by him. He was kind of like the... Uh, oh, I don't know, the Billy Graham of his day, right? So he's teaching people that we have to be prepared. We have to repent of our sins because judgment will come. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the people who were in, in control of the temple and religious life in that period of time, those people came out also to hear what John was talking about. So you might remember in the Christmas story early on, we see Mary go and visit her relative, Elizabeth, who was also going to have a baby, right? Well, John is Elizabeth's baby. Elizabeth and her son, or her husband, Zechariah, were older and they were unable to have children and they were past the childbearing age. But Gabriel comes, the angel of the Lord comes and he tells Zechariah, you guys are going to have a baby. And Zechariah laughs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. My wife is old. We can't have babies. We're too old. And because of that, the angel shuts up Zechariah's mouth, which I'm sure Elizabeth was thankful for. And he could not speak for nine months. So the whole time that Elizabeth is in her, her uh, child birthing, raising, baby growing stage, he can't speak at all. And the first words out of his mouth when he could miraculously speak again was after John was born. And he says, his name is John. Those are the first words that Zechariah speaks. So both John and Jesus were born in some pretty interesting supernatural circumstances, right? There's this framework through which the Holy Spirit is moving both in the life of John and in the life of Jesus. So uh, while we can see that Jesus and John are related from Scripture, there is nowhere in Scripture that says John and Jesus hung out on the regular. There's nothing that says John and Jesus got to like 
play together. There was nothing in scripture that tells us that John and Jesus would go to family picnics together. There's nothing that said John and Jesus got to sit at the child's table together at family reunions. There's no story of them relating to one another until this time in scripture when Jesus is 30 years old and John is just a little bit older. There's no information in scripture that these guys even recognized one another. In John chapter 1, 29 through 34, it says this about their relationship. It says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So whether they knew each other before this moment or not, I, I don't know. But what I am sure of is that they knew of each other, right? Because I can't imagine growing up in such a, a, a beautiful, supernatural way, right? Um, Jesus being born of Mary and the Spirit of God and John being born of a, a miracle for older men and women to have a child. I can't imagine that John and Jesus didn't know of each other because I'm sure their mothers told the stories repeatedly. Well, I wasn't pregnant, then an angel showed up, and then I was pregnant. I wasn't pregnant because I was like 90. I don't know how old she was, but she was older. Probably not 90. And then an angel told me that we were going to get pregnant, and we were. Miraculous things. I imagine that Jesus and John knew of each other, even if they didn't know each other by sight. In this moment, in Jesus' baptism, we see this beautiful moment where we see Jesus being prepared for the ministry that he's going to have to do. So, okay, one of the things I know that people ask themselves when we're talking about Jesus' baptism is, well, doesn't John do baptisms for repentance? The answer to that is yes. Scripture tells us that John gave baptisms for repentance, but but. Jesus doesn't have to repent. He's perfect. So why is Jesus being baptized by, by John? Well, so the answer is that he didn't have to be baptized by John. Jesus didn't have to repent of sin. But according to John Wesley, the founder of our faith, there are two types of sin, a known sin and an unknown sin. The known sins are sins that we commit knowing that we are choosing to do wrong instead of right. When we're selfish, when we do anything against God's perfect nature and his perfect will for us, we're doing a known sin. We are sinning of our own free will. And then there's the unknown sin, this sin that kind of lives in human nature. Original sin, it resides in each of us. This human nature that we have instilled and coded genetically into who we are, that's original sin. There's some great Methodist resources if you want to know more about original sin. Of course, I, my favorite is umc.org that will help understand what original sins is, is a little bit more. So feel free to look something like that up. But 
on our website at umc.org in an article titled, How Did John Wesley Understand Original Sin? The article dives into Wesley's understanding of what original sin and baptism looks like in our lives. The article quotes one of his sermons, and it goes a little bit further into John Wesley's understanding. So the quote is this, but was there not good mingled with evil, right? The question is, is there not good in us along with the evil? Was there not light intermixed with darkness? John Wesley says, no, not at all. God saw that the whole imagination of the heart of man was only evil. It cannot indeed be denied, but many of them, perhaps all, had good motions put into their hearts, for the Spirit of God did then also strive with man, if haply he might repent. But still in his flesh dwelt no good thing. Nothing in humanity was good. All his nature was purely evil. It was wholly consistent with itself and unmixed with anything of opposite nature. It was this pervasiveness of evil among and sinking deep into everyone, with possibly the exception of Noah, that led God to destroy everything else on the earth. And we are no better now, as far as our human nature goes, than we were thousands of years ago. That overarching and underlying reality about us, every one of us, is why God has set about to save us through Jesus Christ. That pervasive sin nature that's just born into us, we need Jesus. John Wesley continues, and I love his uh, 18th century language. I don't really, it's hard to understand. But here's what he says. He says, know your disease, know your cure. Ye were born in sin, therefore ye must be born again, born of God. By nature ye are wholly corrupted. By grace ye shall be wholly renewed. In Adam ye all died, in the second Adam, in Christ, ye are all made alive. You that were dead in sins hath he quickened. He hath already given you a principle of life, even faith in him who loved you and gave yourself or gave himself for you. Now go on from faith to faith until your whole sickness be healed and all that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Apart from God's grace leading us to redemption, we have no hope of deliverance from the control of a natural sin in our lives. But God's grace made available to all of us in Jesus Christ through discipleship and through the church, we have hope. So Jesus wasn't in this moment being baptized as a repentance from sin. Nothing that he committed would have been thought sinful, but as a sign of his cleansing and his clinging to the will of his Father. Jesus was going deeper into his discipleship. All righteousness must, must have been completed by Jesus, stepping into the will of his Father in heaven through this ritualistic cleansing and purification from this genetic-born condition of human sin. His baptism was a sign of the cleansing that God had done through the work of his prevenient grace. According to pastor and professor of New Testament interpretation, Jonathan Pennington, to better understand Jesus' move to become baptized, we must understand what repentance means. Today, this, often, this word often evokes the image of someone standing on a street corner with a sign that says, repent, the end is near. Biblical repentance is broader and it's tuned differently. 
the call to repent for the kingdom of God is near, is an urgent invitation to reorient our values, our habits, our loves, our thinking, and our behavior according to a different understanding. One that's rooted in the revelation of God's nature and coming reign. In short, repentance means become a disciple. Turn from who you were, become who God is calling you to be. Jesus' repentance is not in the sense of turning from sin or turning from evil, but instead of dedicating himself to follow God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus' baptism serves as another deep way in which Jesus prepared himself to do God's work here and now. He orients his life within the will of his Father in heaven. And again, according to a different gospel, in Mark's gospel, we see the Trinity perfectly visible through this time. So God the Father speaking about Jesus the Son, affirming that he pleases God, that this is my chosen one. And in, in, uh, in, in Mark, we see the heaven is torn open and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. Father, Son, and Spirit coming together for this beautiful moment, this Trinitarian thought. And this baptizing serves as both an alignment with God's mission and an example for each of us of what we have to do. No matter how good we think we are, we still have to be cleansed. We still have to die to ourselves and rise with Jesus so that we can follow the work of God here and now. Baptism for Jesus was the ultimate preparation for what was coming next. Because immediately what comes next, and by that I mean immediately what comes next, is that Jesus is drawn out into the wilderness by that same Holy Spirit that descended on him like a dove. So while I'm sure Jesus knew before this moment of his baptism that he was God's son, I'm sure the voice of confirmation of God saying, this is my son whom I love, in him I am pleased, I'm sure that has got to rock Jesus' world for a minute. Have you ever heard stories about people who discovered something pretty crazy about themselves in adulthood that really messed them up? Like, for instance, some of us who have a brother, maybe that we did not know that we even had for our whole lives. Maybe some of us know friends and family who um, maybe dad has a whole nother family somewhere else, right? With this 23andMe situation, we've seen things where people think their father is really their father and it's not really their father at all genetically. Can you imagine finding those things out as an adult? Maybe you were, you were uh, adopted as a child and your parents never told you. And when you find that out as an adult, there's a lot of wrestling you have to do with your identity at this point. So, although I know Jesus knew who he was, I imagine like that, that human aspect of who Jesus was really wrestled with being both God and man, being the son of the creator of the universe. That's a big deal. Can you imagine what that might have felt like? So if we think about the wrestling that some of those other folks had to do with who they were and and kind of this change and shift in identity, how much more then was Jesus having to wrestle with those same things? And so the very next story that we have, and in the words of Mark's gospel, it says, at once Jesus goes out into the wilderness to fast and to pray where he is tempted by Satan. 
We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 4, so you can follow along with me on this one. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up on their hands or in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you. He said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So my suggestion, and it's just a suggestion, is that in this time in the wilderness, it was not only spent being tempted by Satan, it says at the end of 40 days, Satan came to him and then began to test him and tempt him. So I, I imagine in my spiritual imagination, that's a word we use in here, my spiritual imagination is that in that time, Jesus was like learning about his father. I imagine he was kind of working through some of the doctrines that he had to teach. I imagine he was preparing to speak some of the parables. I imagine that he was practicing some of the miracles that he was doing. And again, this is just in my imagination. None of this is real. We don't know exactly what happened. But in my mind, Jesus was preparing himself to go and do the mission that he was called to do. He had just heard that he's the son of God. And then Satan comes at the very end of 40 days. He's fasted. He's been alone. He's been working through his own identity and, and, and wrestling with who God is and who he is and how he's going to change the world. The, the mission that he knows is going to end up with his death. That's something that weighs, I'm sure, pretty heavily on his heart. And when he's weak and when he's tired... Then Satan shows up. If you really are the son of God. Now, remember, we had just heard that God confirmed this. Do this. Jesus says, well, Scripture says I can't. Well, how about then this? Nope, 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 Satan. Scripture still says that I can't. All you got to do then, Jesus, is just worship me and I'll give you everything you can ever imagine. Now, that would be pretty tempting, right? But Jesus stands strong because he was spiritually prepared, right? All of his religious training, sitting in front of the teachers when he was a little boy, baptizing himself, well, not himself, but being baptized when he was 30. Like all of these things prepared him for the life that he knew he had to travel. And when Satan shows up, even quoting scripture, well, surely the angels will protect you. They'll keep you from dashing your foot against a stone. Scripture says that, you know. Sometimes the most evil people can use the Bible to justify evil things. And if you don't know and you aren't prepared, you might not stand so strong. 
I think that the devil appeared to Jesus to tempt him as a way to destroy God's move to save humanity. After all, if Satan could just tempt Jesus away from his mission, come on, Jesus, I'll give you everything you want. Just don't, don't teach people about who God is. Just don't die on a cross for their sins. Don't do any of that. Just come and, and enjoy wealth and privilege and power. And wealth and privilege and power are the same things that tempt each of us to not do the will of God today, right? So here's where we can tie our sermon from last week in with this week. Jesus had to be ready for whatever he was going to face. Without his baptism, without his parents' faithfulness to teach him the ways that he should go, without his tradition found in the Jewish faith, when the time came for him to face the temptations of Satan, without that foundation, Jesus might not have had the same response. Being prepared for spiritual battle that Jesus faced was important to Jesus to continue the mission that he was given to show the world who God was. And if in that moment temptation of Jesus, Jesus gave into that temptation, the fate of humanity would probably have ended up differently than it did today. Satan would have won and humanity would have been just as condemned without the full power of life and death and resurrection of Jesus that we know. So what does all of that mean for us right now? right now. What does this all, the, all this mean for us today? Well, first of all, it's another call for us to be ready. Seeing the example of our Savior should serve as a reminder that we are called to be baptized into the body of believers just as Jesus showed us through his example. It unites us not only to Jesus, our baptism unites us to one another in the mission of God at work in the world right now. You and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's something incredible and powerful. Second, these stories of what comes next serve as a way to show us that if temptation can come to Jesus, the Son of God, then temptation will surely hit all of us. So if we know temptation is coming, we need to be ready for it. Later on in the New Testament, in the book of James, in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, it says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Scripture is absolutely clear that when we are tempted, it's because of our own desires, when we are enticed to do evil. If desire is conceived and it gives birth to sin, the only way to stop this unholy union is to recognize and control our desires. Just as Jesus recognized the move of Satan to entice him with what his body desired, food, power, might, yet Jesus resisted, we have to do that same thing. When temptation comes for us to sin, we have to remain strong and know the word of God. The only way to be strong in our faith is to know what the Bible says so that we have a solid foundation to reject Satan's attempts to corrupt us. I think it's very clear <clears throat> for all of us that Satan, just like in that story of Jesus in the wilderness, he always shows up when it's most convenient for him and least convenient for us. When something else is happening in our lives, when something bad is already facing us, Satan shows up just to throw another wrench in the works, right? 
our desires are enticed and enhanced by the evil in our human hearts through the spiritual forces of wickedness that we have been called to reject through our baptism. So I'm calling each of us this week, and not just this week, but always, to lay our desires down at the feet of Jesus. I'm calling all of us to let go of the things that we want for ourselves and to once again claim our baptism that allows us to be filled with the same spirit of power that equipped Jesus to overcome temptation. That same power is in each of us. Let us use that God-given strength to live into the life of Jesus and reject the death that comes with sinning. Let us claim once again our baptism that unites us and strengthens us for the journey we will face ahead of us. So this week and always, may we live holy lives that reflect the work of Jesus on the cross for us. And may each of us be willing to lay down our own desires for the good of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, baptism is important. And temptation is something we have to stand against. And I want to remind you that if you've not been baptized, don't wait another minute. Come and see me after church. I would love to talk to you about it. If you have not been baptized and you're watching us online, send me a message and we will make something happen for you. But our baptism is our initiation into the body of believers that equips us and empowers us to do God's work in the world. So don't wait another minute. Friends, we have a hard road ahead of us as believers. Temptation comes from every angle and God wants us to be prepared. Guys, that happens here in this place. It happens if you're watching online. It happens when we're doing small groups together, when we're reading scripture, when we're praying. These spiritual disciplines equip us and prepare us to overcome any sort of temptation. So I implore you, friends, fill your life with the things of the Spirit and not the things of the world. And I know that's hard, but that's what God is calling us to do today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Community Cast. We hope that you were blessed by today's conversation. If you'd like to know more about Community Brookside, please feel free to visit us at our website, communitybrookside.com, or find us on your favorite social media outlet. We hope to hear from you soon. Be blessed.